Are you a physician looking to take your own profitable medical expert witness practice to the next level? MedicalExpertWitness.com is the ultimate program to learn how to brand yourself as an expert witness and get yourself seen. Sure, building your reputation in the field from scratch has its challenges, but don't let them hold you back. MedicalExpertWitness.com understands what you're facing as they were once there too. In fact, 10 years ago, CEO Dr. Jordan Romano started his own consulting in the medical malpractice space. His experience has including providing expert witness testimony, reviewing medical records, and analyzing complex medical cases. Dr. Romano has become well-versed in the intricacies of medical malpractice law and has worked on cases for both plaintiffs and defendants in nearly every state in the U.S. And now, his company provides medical professionals with the tools and support they need to supercharge their career as a medical expert witness. Sounds great, doesn't it? Absolutely. Just imagine having the support you need to brand yourself as a medical expert witness too. Now that's powerful. So what are you waiting for? Visit medicalexpertwitness.com today and gain access to a mentor who can connect you with attorneys in need of your specialized knowledge, expand your network, find new cases, and watch your business thrive. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Healthcare inequity in the United States is dramatic and alarming. So today we talk about those inequities and the history of the healthcare disparities in the U.S. that got us here. Dr. Kanika Sims, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to chat with you today about this topic. Me too. I've really been looking forward to this. So just to introduce you to the audience, you're a hospitalist and assistant professor of hospital medicine at Morehouse School of Medicine, and also the CEO of Invest and Inclusion. So that's your own company that you started. And so we're going to be talking about, really, we're going to start with just the origin story. What is an invest? What is Invest and Inclusion? And what was your reason for starting it? But just so the audience knows, this will be a two-parter. Today's more going to be like the history of healthcare disparities. And part two, which is going to be in a few weeks, is going to be more of the solutions to the problem and what we should all be doing to move things forward. So first, what is invest and inclusion? And what is the origin story there? Okay. So first is invest inclusion. So it's actually not invest in inclusion. It's actually just invest inclusion. So invest in, before I tell you what invest inclusion is for me, I feel like I do need to give you a backstory. So I've been practicing medicine now for about 15 plus years. And I can tell you when I completed residency, and I think this was back in 2009, I was internal medicine, pediatrics. I had done a joint med piece residency and I was like, this is not it. I really felt like I wasn't really doing the thing that I went into medicine to do. I went into medicine to help people. And I felt like I was tuning people up to send them back out, to come back in. It wasn't really making like this massive difference that I thought I would go into medicine to make. Like catch so, and release. Catch and release. Exactly. After residency, instead of getting a doctor job, I actually went and got my master's in public health from, at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Sorry, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, to be clear. And I also did a preventive medicine fellowship with them because I realized, you know, Hopkins has this tagline and it says, saving lives millions at a time. 
And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to save lives. I want to prevent disease and illnesses. So I did that. I got my master's in public health. I completed the fellowship. And then I realized that we don't really have a good system for preventive medicine in this country. And so I ended up going back into the default, the thing that was safe that I knew how to do, and I became a hospitalist. And so I've been a hospitalist ever since. And then recently went into academia, probably seven years. That sounds like you're back on catch and release. What, what, what happened? I'm completely backing. Okay. So full disclosure, I went to Hopkins because I wanted to be Surgeon General one day. And so it was either Harvard or Hopkins. And you may not know, but Hopkins actually is like the number one school of public health. Harvard is actually number two. I went to Hopkins. I was going to be Surgeon General. And then during my second year at the program, I had a baby. I lost all my ambitions. And I decided that I actually wanted to leave medicine. I wanted to raise my baby. And like I was no longer that super ambitious person that I had, you know, went to Hopkins for initially. Just hold that thought for a second, because the fact that Hopkins is number one and Harvard is number two for public health is going to come up at the next family conversation. Because my sister-in-law, I think, was a year behind you or a year ahead of you at Hopkins. She got her MPH there during her general internal medicine year. And my brother graduated from the Harvard Public Health School. The fact that she's number one and he's number two is going to come back in family conversations. And I'm sure they'll probably <laughs> pull something up and say, no, 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 this year Harvard was number one. You know, you say catch and release. I went back to catch and release, right? Because I was like, I'm not saving the world. I'm going to raise this most precious little being. And then I spent the next 10 years as a hospitalist because it really gave me like a lot of flexibility having babies. I, you know, I said I spent my 30s having babies. And when I had my last one, I was like, wait a minute. All right. I'm ready to save the world again. Right. I went into academia. I've been in academia now about seven years. I initially started at Emory School of Medicine. I was there for about three years. And then I transitioned to Morehouse School of Medicine simply because it was more in line with my philosophy. And so this just brings us to invest inclusion. So everything that I do, everything I've ever done in my career has been about equity and fairness. I'll say at the beginning, you know, when I was in college, I wanted to be Angela Davis. I was like, right. I was like, I want to be Angela Davis. And I was like, oh, you know, the civil rights movement has already happened. Everything's equal and fair. I missed my moment. Now, I want to remind you and anybody listening, I was 18 years old. Okay. So clearly I did not know that I had not missed my moment. But isn't it interesting how everything comes full circle after George Floyd and everything happening with police brutality? And like, there's just such a heightened awareness of the inequities within our um, criminal justice system. And one of my girlfriends, so I told her, I said, you know, I really should have gone into law. I should have gone into the criminal justice system. I should have been a judge or an attorney because that's where, you know, I really could have made a difference. Yeah, you and needed she, another degree. You're I needed another degree. Another degree. <laughs> <more> than- <laughs> I'm sorry. And this is getting to like where Invest Inclusion came from. She said to me, and she's a physician, she said, you do know that we probably kill more people than the police. And it's just not caught on camera. And she's right. You know, through misdiagnosis, delayed diagnosis, all of those things, mistreatment, we in the healthcare industry, we have all of our own things to deal with. And so it really changed my viewpoint and my philosophy. And my philosophy became like within your sphere, 
whatever your sphere is. So for me, it's in the healthcare industry. There is a need for social justice. There is a need for equity within these spaces. And so for me, it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this work, I need to do this work within my own organization um, within so that I can have the flexibility to move the way I would want to move. And so I created Invest Inclusion so that I could um, do health equity, consult with organizations who have a mission and a value statement for health equity, um, work with clients um, directly. Amazing. Yeah, you didn't need to turn your professional career upside down because you already had you know, two advanced degrees in, that you could leverage to make the world a better place in this specific way that you wanted to do it. But I could totally see where you're like, oh, you know, this is, I need to be in the room where, you know, to quote Hamilton, I need to be in the room where it happens. And the room where it happens is where the laws are being made. And the room that happens isn't the exam room. And so, yes, like we are at the whim of the, the lawmakers, right? When it comes to even practicing medicine, right? As we're seeing, you know, with the Dobbs decision. So I totally see where you're, where you are coming from with that. But at the same time, you know, we, we come with these areas of expertise and leveraging, you've already got a network of, you know, professionals and all these things. So now that you're leveraging all of that, it's an incredible vision and the work that you're doing is important and incredible. So let's educate our audience about that. So let's start off with just definitions. How is healthcare equity defined, right? I've seen all these like memes about equity versus equality versus justice, right? But like, let's niche down just to healthcare. So how are we defining healthcare equity? Okay. So I want to start by saying there's so many definitions for healthcare equity. The CDC has a definition. There's just so many. But basically, the healthcare equity says that Every individual, regardless of who they are, will be get will have the same have the opportunities to have the same healthcare outcomes. So it means having equal access, equal. I don't want to use equal because we're going to talk about health equality versus health equity. But health equity is really looking at what are the roots, what are the there are roots that lead us to not necessarily having equity in the healthcare space, meaning having the same outcomes, having the same access to quality healthcare. That's where the health equity piece comes in at. Me as a Black woman should have the same healthcare outcomes as you as a white man for all intents and purposes, right? Um, my race should not impact the quality in, of healthcare that I receive. Okay. And so, but, so what, is, what is actually happening? I mean, so what's actually happening is so there are tons of literature. So we're going to talk about healthcare disparities is because, I mean, I feel like that's such a broad question when you say what is actually happening, because what is actually happening is not that. There is no equity. There is no equality. There's, there, there are neither of those things happening right now. So I guess just I'll narrow the question down a little to just let's go into some examples of, so what are the more, what are some of the more glaring disparities that are out there in terms of healthcare outcomes? So I think the one that most people are familiar with, and I love the fact that what we're doing here is like, these are the things you should have learned in medical school. So Black women in this country are three to four times more likely to die during pregnancy and one year post-pregnancy than their white counterparts. And so the first thought with that is like, oh, well, you know, Black women may not be as educated. Black women don't take as good care of themselves or all the things that we tell ourselves, Right we're being told in the healthcare space. 
And so what they did is they've done studies that looked at based on your wealth, your income. So me as a black woman with a medical degree with a certain income, if you compare me to a white woman in that same space, right, the same circle, same educational attainment, I'm still twice as likely as she is to die having a baby here in America. So that's one of really sobering statistics. And then as a Black woman in my position, I am still more likely to die and have poor outcomes during childbirth or after than a poor white woman. And so the thing that is just most glaring to us is like when you're like, we're just all women having babies. So why are Black women, why is it such a dangerous thing for Black women in this country to give birth and to have babies? And since we're talking about babies, let's talk about babies. So they've looked at the infant mortality in this country. So from newborn to one years of age, and black babies are three times as likely to die as white babies. And so those are some really sobering statistics when we talk about healthcare disparities. I had seen that that one of the ways to mitigate for that is giving those black babies black doctors. And there's so much controversy around this, right? Because people are like, whoa, wait a minute, what are you saying here? But I found that study pretty, uh, really interesting. And so it was a study that was done and they looked at 1.8 million live births in Florida. So they pulled the records and they looked at- Florida. Listen, don't get distracted by being Florida. It could have easily been any, probably any other state in the country. You know, the blue states don't, you know, shouldn't put themselves on a pedestal and say, well, I just did and say, you know, well, because it's Florida. And I'm sorry, I just lost a whole bunch of listeners from Florida. <laughs> but I'll give an example. Like I live on Long Island, which is, we're responsible for George Santos. So I'm sorry about that. But, you know, New York State and New York City and the surrounding suburbs tend to be very, very blue. But if you make your way onto Long Island, Long Island is one of the most segregated places by race and religion. So, you know, we might be like, oh, well, we're New York and we're progressive and we're liberal. But at the same time, you know, put your money where your mouth is and you look at things like that. So I think this is what we were talking about before the show. Like these are the uncomfortable conversations that we need to have to move things forward. So like, So why is this happening? Why are these outcomes different if you are, and by the way, this is a great argument for diversity in hiring, for diversity in the medical education system, because it improves outcomes, which is like the ultimate measure. How do you define a good doctor, right? So sorry, I'm going off on this tangent. I want to get back to you because they're not here to listen to me. They're here to listen to you. But these these are the uncomfortable questions. So why do you think that's happening? Put it out there. But before I I answer that question, I wanted to finish, close the loop on the other one, which is what they showed is that black babies who had black doctors lived. They had better outcome. The death rate. So we said, you know, it was black babies are three times as likely to die as white babies. And so what they showed is if you had a black doctor, it decreased the rate by half. What this says is that, I mean, it didn't decrease the rate to zero, right? But it decreased the rate by half. All things considered, all things in play, 1.8 million babies. You can't say it's a sampling error. You can't say any of those things. And I think that's the part that's mind-blowing to people because then it says, we as a healthcare professionals, we have to question ourselves, why is it that this is happening? 
So that is the question you asked me. Why do I think this is happening? So I have to decide, like, am I going to be gentle with this? <laughs> Put it out there, rip the bandaid off. We need to hear it. For those who are listening to a po- as in podcast form, I am, if you're not looking on YouTube, I am white. And as I told Dr. Sims before the show, I am socks with sandals white. I am white. So I need to make sure that I am serving my patients the best as possible. So I need to hear it as you want to say it, not as I need to hear it. That makes sense. So when we talk about health equity and we talk about looking at the root causes, right, looking at the social injustice. And so the reality is that this country is founded on racist principles. And I know a little bit later, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of healthcare because I don't think we can really talk about this subject without people understanding the history of healthcare. But based on the founding principles of this country, Black people have always been seen as second-class citizens. We've always been seen as inferior. And so this idea that we are just somehow post in a post-racial society is just not true. And so when we talk about social determinants of health, these social determinants of health are your housing, you know, whether or not you have food, whether or not you have education, do you have access to quality education and jobs? Are you given? And then when you do see it, so do you have access to quality doctors? And then when you do see a doctor, do they have these biases, biases that we all have, by the way, but do they have biases that negatively impact the care that they give you? And the answer is yes. And I think the problem in our healthcare space is that we like to believe we're good people. We, you know, we went into medicine to help people and I'm not racist. And I will be clear, I'm not calling anybody racist. What I am saying is that you have biases and these biases are impacting the way you take care of your patients and the care you provide your patients. And I think that is something that I would love to delve into a little bit deeper is now when people talk about biases, so I can't assume that everybody knows what like biases are, or let me say this, everybody knows what biases are. We all have biases. We all have things that we favor over something else. When we talk about biases, we're like, typically like, oh, it's a little bit of like some prejudices there. Like for me in my book that I wrote about how I prefer Nike over Adidas, you know, I'm biased in favor of Coke over Pepsi. And those biases, not a big deal. The biases that become a big deal are typically what we call implicit biases or unconscious biases. And these are biases that most people don't actually know they have. And that's actually what makes them the most dangerous is because if you know you have a bias, then you can try to overcome it. But if you don't know that you have this bias and it's something that's in your unconscious, then that's what makes it really, really dangerous. And so in healthcare, what we see, so there are lots of biases, but I think the biases in healthcare that really impact us are affinity bias. And that's where an affinity bias is like you just, you have something in common with somebody. And so because of those commonalities, you just, you kind of vibe, you know, like we both went to Johns Hopkins or we're both doctors or we both, I don't know, the walking dead, you know, like, so whatever those commonalities are that you vibe over. Wait, you want to do an episode where we talk about The Walking Dead? I don't actually like The Walking Dead. It was only an example. (laughs) Oh, Oh, crushed. So that's an affinity bias. And so like there are people, and then there's also out-group and in-group bias. Out-group bias and in-group bias is that you just have an affinity towards people who are in your in-group, right? People who are like you, people from Long Island, 
And then if we're being more specific, white men from Long Island. It's just a natural human thing that we do. Oh, when you say it like that, though, it just sounds like I want to hang out with white men from Long Island. (laughs) (laughs) But what you're saying, we're tribal. We're tribal. We're drawn, like human beings are tribal because we're drawn because because the way we evolved like we evolved in tribes and if you encountered someone from another tribe well that could be dangerous because they could kill you and the more you stay with your own tribe the safer you are that's one of the reasons we like shame and guilt are such strong emotions like if you're excluded from the tribe it could be a death sentence so like yeah we affinity towards towards other doctors towards other to, to we want to be but you're saying that these things that evolved to keep us alive for millions of years are now actually us as physicians who are responsible for other people's lives are now hurting the people that we aim to treat, that we aim to help. And then that becomes a problem. Then that becomes not this harmless thing that, you know, this is just how people are. These are people's lives. And so when you are not connecting with the patient because they are not a part of your in-group, the patient can tell that you don't connect to them. They can tell that you seem a little bit distant. You seem a little uninterested, and then they're less likely to trust, you know, your recommendations and that sort of thing. And so all of these things have have ramifications. When you believe certain stereotypes about people, so if there's affirmation bias, like you already have this belief, and so then you're looking for something to affirm what you already believe. And so if you believe that Black people are drug seekers, then you don't give them pain medicine for their very real pain. Or you don't believe a pregnant woman when she's like, something's wrong with me and you don't take her seriously enough to actually investigate and to do the studies and to do what needs to be done. And so this is what leads to the delayed diagnosis, the misdiagnosis, the delayed treatments. And once again, in medicine, this isn't about whether or not you like me, it's about my life. And so these are some of the things that we're definitely seeing that are playing into the health disparities that we see. and. Even, and I don't know that we'll have, if we'll be able to talk about this, but there have been theories throughout that have said Black people are inferior. There was like the study of, I think, like phrenology where they looked at skull sizes and, you know, and they were like, oh, based on this skull, we can tell, you know, your intelligence level and this and that. And these are in textbooks and these are things that were taught to by scholars, Right. And so this inferiority of Black people is what, or this teaching of inferiority of Black people is how they were able to justify the enslavement of Black people. And so when you take away Black people being enslaved, you don't necessarily take away these theories and these beliefs. And so if you somehow believe that Black people as a whole are inferior or amoral or whatever those beliefs are that you may unconsciously hold, they're absolutely going to negatively impact the care you give a patient. So these were all things that were, that became part of society in America in order for slave owners and not even slave owners, but people that just abided the fact that there were slave, that were, that people were enslaved and there were slave owners allowed those people to sleep at night thinking that they were, because everyone needs to be the hero of their own story, right? Everyone needs to go to bed at night, being able to sleep, thinking that they did the right thing. So there were these lies out there so that they could convince themselves that what they were doing was just and correct. And when the Emancipation Proclamation occurred, those things didn't just evaporate. And what you're saying is 100 and 
I'm going to get the math wrong, like 170 years later, all of those ideas, although they're not as blatant as they were before, still are part of the culture and still exist and still are affecting all of us and it out, even though we might think that they don't exist, right? Like we being non-black people might think that, oh no, that was then, that's what they taught. I would never believe something ridiculous like that, but it just doesn't fade from the memory of the nation even after 170 years and still continues to be per perpetuated. Right. And here's the reality. I mean, we're human. And so there are certain people who you may think you're superior to. And whether it's race, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic status, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be. People or, from Florida. Stop it. You said it, not me. <laughs> so, but I can tell you, I've gone to the doctor before and I didn't wear my doctor hat. I just wore my, I'm a black woman hat here with my son who's having some GI issues. And when I tell you that the GI doctor walked in, he never looked at me. He looked at the computer the entire time that we were in the room. And so he's asking his questions. He's looking at the computer. He never looks at me. He's like, I'm going to run some tests. I was like, okay, so what test are you going to run? He was like, just some blood work. And I was like, so what does the blood work consist of? He was like, just some labs. Never looked at me. And then so I started naming off the tests that I was assuming that he was going to run. And all of a sudden, he goes from never facing me to turning and looking straight at me. He's like, oh, you must be in the medical field. Like, you know, what do you do? And then all of a sudden, he was interested in me. And when I tell you his entire, his posture changed, his demeanor changed, it was, he relaxed, he sat back, he, you know, half crossed his legs, like he just settled in, you know, he was like, oh. And then he started to engage with me and have this conversation. And I'm like, I have no desire to talk to you. You have no idea what just happened, but I do. But I played the game because I needed to do what I needed to do. And then he ended up referring us to like this amazing doctor who we still see to this day, who's absolutely wonderful. But what it showed me was the difference in care that as a black woman going into this space, I will walk out with a completely different impression than probably a white woman going into this space because Maybe he would actually turn and look at them, right? <laughs> Maybe he would actually engage with them and explain to them what's happening. And it wasn't until I played the doctor card that I became somebody who was worth his time and worth his attention. And I could give you story after story like that to the point where I never just go anywhere in a healthcare space as a black woman. I am always a physician. I am always Dr. Sims. I am always leading with my credentials and who I am because I don't need you I don't need to play the games of allowing you to show me who you are. And maybe you're excellent and you're going to treat me great no matter what. But I've done that too many times to see the opposite. So then the question is, how did we get here, right? So we were just talking about the history of enslaved peoples in America and how that informed how it became necessary for the slave owners to kind of invent this narrative and how it's still affecting people today. But let's go through that history in more detail and how and why it's still affecting healthcare outcomes. Okay. So I hope you and your listeners are as fascinated by this as I am. And I didn't actually learn the history until recently. And when I say recently, it was probably about five years ago. And I was like, I never learned this in school. Like every medical student needs to know this. The thing we don't think about, so in 18, so you talked about the Emancipation Proclamation, 1863. But a lot of enslaved Black people didn't actually know they were free, right? So 
It wasn't actually until 1865 at the end of the Civil War where enslaved Black people were freed. So you're talking about 4 million Black former enslaved people who were free. They have no money. They have no job. They have no shelter. They have nothing. So what do you think happens to 4 million people who are suddenly let go, free with none of those things? So first of all, shelter. They ended up staying in churches, abandoned buildings, warehouses, places where there are lots and lots of them together. There was very little running water. They didn't really know how to take care of themselves. There are lots. So as you can imagine, as a physician, there are lots of diseases, lots and lots of diseases. And so Black people during that time were literally hundreds and thousands of them were just dying of smallpox and other infectious diseases. And so what the federal government did is they actually created the Freedmen's Bureau. And it was the first federal government health care. Because as a reminder, back then, health care was mainly delivered like in your home. If you had like a doctor who came to your home or like there were family members. And the only hospitals in existence were for poor people, white people, and they were run by charities. And these charities were not interested at all in providing care for black people. And so the federal government created these hospitals, the, like I said, the Freedmen's Bureau system in their generosity. They sent 120 doctors. There are 120 doctors as a part of the Freedmen's Bureau for 4 million formerly enslaved people. So as you can imagine, the hospitals were under-resourced. They didn't have enough beds, linens, medications. They didn't have quarantine facilities. The only purpose of these hospitals is that the white citizens wanted the Black people taken care of just enough so that they wouldn't, the diseases wouldn't spread into their communities, but not too much because we're just not doing that. And so I will tell you, um, it was, say, they talk about how, you know, there was smallpox, there was diphtheria. And so there was like this really huge diphtheria outbreak and just how it just wiped out so many people and it even spread into the white communities. But they, and what they did for one of the hospitals, I think this was in North Carolina, they talked about there was a smallpox outbreak and instead of sending more resources, they burned down the hospital. And now the reason this is important is because it tells you the origin of healthcare in America. And one of the reasons they would not send resources is because they said that Black people were dying because they were genetically inferior and they were ill-suited for freedom. And so it was one of those things where why would you give money to, this is just, you know, this is evolution. This is just going to happen. You're wasting money. So there was no money given. And so what happened is Black professionals, Black healthcare professionals have done what we still continue to do, which is they built schools so that we could be, so Black people could be educated. They built medical schools. They built hospitals. And so it wasn't until 1947 when America tried to, I think it was President Truman, he actually put forth the first like universal health care plan. It was going to be like a federal like national insurance because the pe- people, there were hospitals then, but these hospitals were segregated. The hospitals, you really needed insurance. And so if you were black, you had very limited access. And if you were a poor white person, you also had very limited access. So President Truman felt like we really need to do something for the health of our nation. And so the wonderful American Medical Association, they they really like 
lobbied really, really hard against this. You don't want the government determining what you do with your body. It got shut down. It didn't happen. And so that was the first, I guess, technically the second attempt for like a federal like healthcare system. And then it wasn't until I think it was 19, when was it? It was 1960, was it 1963? That was the civil, or 1964 was the civil rights, the civil rights act. And it was 1960, that was 1963, 1964. I think it was President Johnson who he wanted to try again, right? This is when Medicare was introduced. And the reason Medicare is what Medicare is because the people who are really lobbying for a more extensive healthcare system, what they knew is that, okay, maybe old people, right? We're talking about, we're talking about our parents and our grandparents. Like, how can you push back against that? What happened, of course, AMA still pushed back against that. But at this point, there was Montague Cobb. He's a black physician and he was the president of the NMA. And I think most physicians know NMA is the National Medical Association because at that time, black physicians were not allowed to be a part of the American Medical Association. It was all very segregated. And what they were able to do, him and black physicians and black nurses in the black community, they were, they lobbied themselves, right? They did, they had protests and they lobbied and they had their own public relations campaign to tell people, this is a good thing, you know, having healthcare for, it's a human right, it's a basic thing. And so they, it actually was passed. And here is where it gets really interesting for me, at least. So a part of the Civil Rights Act in 1963, it made discrimination illegal. And so it also made segregation illegal. But at this time, hospitals were still segregated because just because there's a law, a federal law, there was no teeth to it. But in order, no enforcement, but in order to get Medicare funding, which are federal dollars, the hospitals had to desegregate. And so what this meant they said four months within the Medicare bill being passed, 3,000 hospitals were desegregated. What we didn't talk about is two points I want to make there. One is I want people to understand as of 1965, our hospitals were still segregated. So we either had our own hospitals that were poorly resourced or we were in the basements of white hospitals. And then white nurses couldn't really take care of black men because, you know, that whole thing, right? And the white doctors would come and see the black patients once they were done seeing their white patients. And so, of course, the care was subpar. The other point I want to make is that, and is that with black people, it was, it was black doctors, black nurses. And of course, it wasn't only black people, but really pushing against the AMA to say, we need more health coverage for the nation. And as a result, we have Medicare. So one of the things we talk about like in, in this space is that the activism of Black people has been so beneficial for so many other groups in ways that most people don't acknowledge. So that is that was a long history lesson. And I hope <laughs> that that I didn't lose you, you know, talking about it. But I just don't think you could talk about health equity and healthcare disparities without acknowledging that as of 1965, our hospitals were still segregated. We were still doing this. Black people were still being sprayed with water hoses and bitten by dogs. And I don't know about you, but I somehow never really thought about what was happening in healthcare during this time. You know, we know about the schools being integrated. We know about like all of these fights for all these other things. And I just never really thought about, wait a minute, 
what happened with the hospitals? It just seemed like hospitals and medicine was always like the sacred ground where you can have You took your, and we talked about this actually, <clears throat> excuse me, on the last show, you took your Hippocratic Oath to treat people fairly and well and do no harm. And clearly that wasn't happening. Right. But we miss it in this generation. And I say in this generation, I went to medical school in 2005. No, I graduated from medical school in 2005. I don't even know if I'm of this generation. You know, it's like there's so many additional gener generations of physicians who've come after me who I'm like, they don't know this history because I didn't know this history. But when you talk about it, it makes sense that like, oh, we didn't automatically start giving Black people excellent care and thinking all of these wonderful things about them. You know, it's like, it starts to make sense. Yeah. The education system, the legal system, the healthcare system, all were segregated, all desegregated, but the desegregation didn't suddenly, you know, it wasn't a magic wand where suddenly all those, all those things went away. Actually, we're going to have to close for today. This is great. And I think this is a great way to close because that was your original intention, right? Was to give episode one be the background to what is healthcare equity? What is the history of it, of the inequity? How did we get here? And then the next episode is going to be what can we do about it? Because even though the desegregation happened in 1965, that was a long time ago. But clearly, as you spoke about earlier, it's not like there are still huge problems out there that we need of inequity that we need to address as individual physicians, as teachers of our patients, as teachers of trainees, and as you're doing, you know, reaching out to whole institutions. So we'll talk about that next time. What, you know, this is how we got here. And next episode is going to be, where do we go from here? So for the people, for the listeners out there, for now, where can they find you online? And also tell us about the book. So you can find me um, at Dr. Kanika, MD, D-R-K-A-N-I-K-A-M-D on all the social media platforms. And then I actually have a website, www.drkanikamd.com. So super simple. Like I'm trying to, I'm, I'm out there so you can find me. I wrote a book called Diversity is Not a Dirty Word. Harnessing the power of inclusion to create inclusive, harnessing the power of inclusion to create anti-racist organizations. That's a book that recently was published and it's just near and dear to my heart because I've been in so many of these spaces. So I feel like I've learned a lot and I have a lot to teach. That's, you know, we talk about healthcare and we talk about healthcare outcomes. The workplaces that we're in matter. And if you're, if it's a toxic workplace, then we can't be healthy in those spaces. And so I think everything comes back for me to health. And so health and equity and justice and all of those things. So I'm really glad that you guys have stayed with us. And like I said, I really hope that the history lesson was interesting. I just, I just find it fascinating, even more fascinating that I didn't know this sooner. Definitely. And, the, and now we have the foundation so that next time we can, we can talk more about where we go from here. Well, Dr. Kanika Sims, thank you for all the great work that you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. 
The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.